Romans 9, 1 to 13. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all those who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had not done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Uh, If last week was a challenge, because it's hard to sort of do justice, uh, to sort of just how glorious, how magnificent Romans chapter 8 is, all the wonderful, glorious stuff that's there. You know, Romans chapter 9 is a little harder in a different way in that, you know, this is complicated stuff. Uh, And Paul is a clever guy, unless if you haven't picked that up already. He's a seriously clever guy, and it is hard to follow some of his arguments that have layers to them uh, and complexity in them. But there's also parts of it that are jarring, that final verse that was read perhaps will have stuck out to you as we've heard it. And the first thing to say is we'll not be able to cover anywhere near all of what's here or all of the questions you might have. In fact, actually, we'll go by it section by section over the next few weeks. So some of those questions will be answered over coming weeks. Some of them won't be answered totally to your satisfaction, I'm sure, but there'll at least be some attempt to do that. Paul has given us this amazing mountaintop experience in chapter 8, And now he's addressing a very specific topic and question. The topic that he has in mind here over this section, not just chapter 9, but chapters 9 to 11, before he then goes into some very practical, obviously practical life sort of applications from chapter 12 onwards, is sovereignty. That is the nature of God's ruling power seen in how he saves And this comes from a question, or really kind of two connected questions. Because he's thinking, one, on a personal level. If I, by nature, am rebellious, I'm prone to subvert the truth, I'm prone to exchange it for a lie, to worship created things, not the creator, how can I come to receive to accept and to follow God's offer of salvation in Jesus? How do I come to accept Christ. There's a very personal question uh, on display and at heart here. And in some ways, as Paul gets to Romans chapter 9, he's showing you a bit behind the curtain of what's happening. He's showing you why you need to come to Christ and what that looks like when you then do up to chapter 8. And then from 9, he would get, well, here's what's really happening behind the scenes that you don't see. You see and you experience what you feel in those moments, but 
here's what's happening if we look at what God is doing. There's a personal question, but there's also a biblical question at play here. Because the other question is, if most of Israel, God's people, have rejected him, has God's word failed? There's a personal question. How do I come to accept Christ? But there's another one. How have many people come to reject Christ? And so we'll see God's sovereignty at play in a few different contrasts here. This morning, we'll look at two brothers or two sets of two brothers. We'll see two objections next week from verse 14 to 29. And then two different kinds of righteousness uh, up to chapter 10, verse 4. But this is the most challenging section of Romans. Why? Primarily because it completely undermines and opposes culture's belief in human autonomy. And so we'll see some of that at play this morning. So I want to show you three things. Firstly, a painful truth in those first couple of verses. Secondly, a privileged people from verse 3 to 5. And then a purposeful election from verse 6 to 13. Paul is delivering here a painful truth. I don't know whether you'll have come across this Meme at some point, online, hard to swallow pills. Uh, people will put all sorts of different things here next, but this is a hard to swallow pill that Paul is delivering here. That actually being Jewish alone is not enough to save you, and being Gentile is not enough to condemn you. That's really at the heart of what might be difficult to receive. Take a moment just to think about the audience here. One commentator, Douglas Moo says one of Paul's purposes in Romans 9 to 11 is the rebuke of Gentile arrogance in Rome and elsewhere toward Jews and Jewish Christians. But he also says, he also writes to convince Jewish Christians of the truth of his gospel. So he has these two different audiences at mind. And so he tells them, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. This tells us real quick, one, he's defending himself. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. He's defending himself. But it tells us, secondly, some may question the truth of his gospel. And what is it they may question? What is it that may be troublesome to people? Well, it's this idea that Christians are God's elect people, his chosen people, not Israel. Now, let's put a caveat to that because note, Christians can and does include some of Israel. Certainly in Paul's mind, and he's going to explain that in much more detail. While Israel would necessarily exclude Christians. But Christians are God's elect people. That ethnic background is not the basis of God's election. Now you'll say, you know, Israel were also encouraged, and rightly, that you know, people from other nations as well would assimilate and would proselytize. Yes, but 99% of them, it was based purely on just where you had been born and brought up. And the idea is that, no, that is not the basis of God's election. Being Jewish isn't enough to save. And being Gentile isn't enough to condemn you. In modern terms, let's put it more into our terms, because this is a little less of a kind of live conversation for for us as it was the early church. But let's change it slightly. I think, well, being churched isn't enough to save. And being unchurched isn't enough in and of itself to keep you out. Let's think about how the church has started here in Rome. This is a church started by Jewish converts at Pentecost, Jews who are then exiled from Rome 
In the midst of conflicts, Gentile believers have then taken over this church um, in the absence of their brothers and sisters. And now these Jewish believers have been able to return. And so how did they sort of appreciate this church here, the gospel's Jewish heritage, without selling out the gospel freedom that we have to a, religious, uh, to a religiosity, perhaps, that some of these Jewish brothers and sisters may be prone to enforce. And so Paul is about to tell them and us a painful truth. It's true, but we may not like to hear all of it. R.C. Sproul, theologian, pastor, uh, commentator, says this, when I was in seminary, uh, I had a card on my desk that read, it's your duty to believe and to teach what the Bible teaches, not what you would like it to teach. He shares that anecdote in the context of saying it took him some time to come to the place that he found himself on believing this passage because he didn't like what it said. And he wrestled with it and he found it difficult to accept. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. It's the same word he's used earlier in chapter 8, verse 16, simarturius, symmetry, same witness, the same message. I'm not speaking out of context with my conscience that is led by the Spirit. And yet we, pull, we see here that Paul isn't emotionless in any of this either. He's not emotionless in delivering what he knows will be hard, what he knows will be offensive and provocative truths. Because to offend is not the same as to hate. That's an important thing to be said in 2022, I think. To offend is not necessarily to hate. I have great sorrow, he says, and unceasing anguish in my heart. Pain at what? What is filling him with such anxiety and and pain? It's not the opposition he'll face. He is sorry for those who just can't see, can't grasp, can't accept the truth of the gospel. We see here from Paul, again, another important truth to be said. Sorrow for the offense he knows he may cause and the confusion in the receipt of his message does not stop him sharing the painful truth of the gospel. Sometimes you have to deliver a truth that is painful, that not everybody will love you for. Great example of this in history, Martin Luther. He's called up before the Diet of Worms and they want him to retract all that he has been saying. He's given a very simple deal. Drop this painful truth you've been raising and you will live and prosper, supposedly. And so he's in a dilemma. A dilemma that actually might be very contemporary for us. Drop the truth of the gospel and things will go well for you. He responds, If then I'm not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if my judgment isn't in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything for it cannot be safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. 
Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. And yet, there's a way to deliver a painful truth too. Chinese proverb. I found it on the internet, so I don't know. It might not even be a Chinese proverb, but let's say it is. <laughs> let's just imagine that everything you read on the internet is true. You don't swat a fly from a friend's head with a tomahawk. There's a way in which to deliver this truth. And we'll see that from Paul. We'll see it here that this is tearing him up. He cares for them. He loves them. He's delivering it because he feels he has no choice but to deliver it. There's a painful truth. But secondly, we see a privileged people. We see all those great promises that Israel have received. And as I was reading, I was trying to think, you know, how do you sort of try to put this into some sort of terms that I could understand even myself? Some of you may do. And as I thought of this, I thought of Paul's characterization of all these great blessings and everything that the people here have had. And necessarily, there's that reality that Gentiles have not had that privilege. I thought of the great training montage in Rocky IV. Uh, You see the split screen between Rocky is training out in the snow. He's doing runs. He's chopping logs. He's cutting trees. He's running with tree trunks on his back. It's basic. It's down to earth. He hasn't really got too much to his hands. And then you also see the split screen and you see Dolph Lundgren, Ivan Drago, and you see him in his multi-million ruble, I suppose it would have been, a sort of facility where he has the computers, he has the monitors, he has all this high-tech equipment. Here he is in some ways doing the same thing, but there's a privilege to Ivan Drago that Rocky just doesn't have the plucky American underdog. Uh, somehow there's something about the narrative that's, <laughs> that's, that's sort of wrong, that somehow the Ameri- poor American without the resources and you know, you know, here's the Russian, whoa, all this wealth of stuff. I mean, maybe history might, might question that a little bit, but nonetheless, it's a movie, so there we go. Here's one who is privileged and has all the equipment, all the opportunities, everything working for him, all the coaches. And here's poor Rocky, just out him and a couple of guys in the middle of the woods. There's a privileged people here who, in theory, have everything you'd think that they might need to find God, and yet maybe it's not quite working out like that. See, though Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, as he's sometimes kind of known, he deeply cares for the Jews, of whom he is one, of course, and he loves them. He says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. They are Israelites, and to them belong, and then we get this long list of all these different privileges. But it's interesting how even he launches this off. The way in which Paul puts it is they're Israelites. He uses the spiritual sort of name for them as a people. The name that's connected with all the promises from God. Because it's not just about an ethnic thing for them. It's about all the weight of spiritual promises that's given to them. And they have eight specific privileges that he'll show us here. And you see, the statements are connected. It's sad, and he is sad here. Because most of Israel have rejected the gospel to this point here, because of who God had made them to be, what makes him so torn up is that, look, here's all the things that God has given. Here's everything that he's done. And still, you know, most of them have not seen this yet. He says to them, as given the adoption. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as my son. One example, lots of places you could go, but one example, Micah 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son, speaking of Israel. 
And yet, interestingly, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, uses this very same verse to describe Jesus' flight to Egypt, away from Herod, and return to Israel. They are adopted. There is children, his firstborn son. He cares for them as a father for children. And Paul has said, obviously, the Christian is now adopted in a slightly different manner back in chapter 8. But that whole idea gets much of its context from the fact that God has always dealt with Israel like a child. To them belongs the adoption. To them belongs the glory. God had chosen above all other places and peoples on the earth to locate his glory in Israel's tents and in Israel's temple. And yet now also as well in Jesus, the glory of God, John says at the beginning of his gospel, has been made manifest. That is made graspable for us in Jesus. To them was given the adoption, the glory, thirdly, the covenants. Throughout the Old Testament, God made covenants with his people when he committed himself to them, specific promises that he would meet for them. To Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to the people at Sinai, to David, that he would deliver them, that he would save them from the curse of sin by crushing Satan, that the earth wouldn't be destroyed again, that God would show them to a land Make them a great nation. He'd continue to bless them. That he'd be their God. They'd be his people. That he'd protect them. That he'd provide for them. That he'd give an everlasting kingdom to be ruled over. The covenants. And now the new covenant of Christ takes its basis from all of this heritage of all of the covenants to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. There's a continuity to all of that, not discontinuity. There's the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. There is a universal moral law that I think everybody has at least some sense of within their consciences. But only Israel received God's written law in all that clarity and fullness. Fifthly, the worship. God gave in the temple and in the sacrificial system a way to relate to him, a way to approach him, to find favor. He revealed himself through his prophets that there's a revelation and a privilege not given to the rest of the world that Israel receive. He gives them, simply the promises. God promises specific blessings and favour to Israel. But really, I think what Paul has in mind here is the recurring promise from Genesis 12 to Abraham to be their God, for them to be his people, to give them a place to live, and for them to be blessed under his rule. The promises, the patriarchs, all the key figures of the faith from whom we learn so much of who God is, what he does, and what it means for us to follow Christ in faith were all Jewish in origin and culture. And then eighth, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. It's no small thing that Jesus himself is Jewish, though he's also rejected by them en masse. The interesting thing, though, about all of those privileges, I don't know if you'll spot this, perhaps you already have, Paul puts them in the present tense. He puts them in the present tense, not the past tense, i.e., they're not necessarily taken away. They still stand. God's not suddenly just done away with them as a people. These things are still there. These privileges are still there by which they might actually, through faith, be able to see and to savor and to accept Christ through them. 
He's not abandoned his people. They're still there for them if they would see. There's a painful truth, a privileged people. And then lastly here, we see a purposeful election. It's not as though the word of God has failed. And this really is the question in this section that I think that Paul has most in his thoughts and in his mind that he's wanting to really address. This is where all the sort of first five verses have been leading up to for him to address here. It is not as though the word of God has failed because it kind of looks that way. If God has done all of those things in verses three to five, but the people have rejected him, it looks as though his word has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And and the way it's worded in the original language is about returning void, returning without return. It's like casting a net out to fish and nothing coming back to you. It's not as though it's lacking the power within itself to be effective. Why? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Being part of the nation is not the same as being part of of the people of God. Being part of the people of God is not about the luck of your birthplace. See, spiritual people of God, here, evidenced by faith, are here. And then there's also a national people of God, Israel, determined by ethnicity too. Again, try to put it into modern terms that are more familiar for us and more relevant for our context. There's a visible church. There's all of us who are here on any given Sunday, who are part of a visible church that we can see. And then there's an invisible church. In the visible church, it's a mixed economy. There's people at different points on a journey. Some of faith, some not of faith yet. The invisible church that we can't always see, we can't always tell, don't always know, are those only of faith. God knows who those are. Every Sunday we preach and we speak and we teach to the visible church, to everybody. (laughs) But there's two different people going on. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And here's the precedent for Paul saying that, verse 7. Not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. And he has in mind here, if you remember the story, Abraham had two sons in particular, didn't he? has Isaac, but he also had Ishmael. The point is, not all are children of Abraham just because they're his offspring, i.e. not Ishmael. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. There's this precedent. Not all who are descended from people of Israel belong to Israel. His precedent for that is to say, look, Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, but it's only through Isaac that the promises and the blessings are administered. And now here's his proof. He's moving on here. Just skip ahead one verse to verse 9. For this is what the promise said. So here's where he's getting it. This is important for him to actually say, no, look, I'm getting this from Scripture. Not all are children of Abraham because there is his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son, i.e. not Hagar. Ishmael was not born to Sarah, was she? She was born to her servant. And now 
circle back, just one more verse here, for the implication that Paul is drawing from this. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. So we started out asking, how can a rebel come to Christ? And yet, how come so many Jews reject Christ? The answer to both is that God elects his people. He chooses. Paul pushes this further now. And he'll push it further throughout the course of this chapter too. But he pushes it further in these next few verses because he's applying election, the idea that God chooses the people to save, on an individual level, not just national. Because to this point, okay, it sounded like he's more talking just about Israel. But I promise you, now he's moving on very specifically personally in his next analogy because he has another two sets, uh, another two brothers, sorry, that he's going to think about here. He brings up this story, verse 10, of Rebekah and Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Paul turns to this other pair of brothers, another patriarch, to show election at work. What are Paul's goals, quickly, just before we get there? He wants to show, as he's done many times before already in the letter, this isn't my new idea. What I'm coming and bringing to you, you need to know, this isn't just my sort of innovative thinking. This, this is how I believe it has always been. Secondly, he wants to convince you, this isn't a fringe idea. This is a really central idea. It's really kind of core to what is actually happening in the gospel, in your heart. You might not see it because it's somewhat, if you like, aerial. It's what God is doing in his realms. Okay, but it is what is going on in those moments of coming to faith. So it's a central idea. But thirdly, that he's being consistent to the Old Testament and they're not. <laughs> and again, you can see, this is a painful truth to deliver, okay? He's not necessarily going to want to hear this. He says that before... They were even born, having done nothing, either good or bad. He sees them as the ultimate test case here, Jacob and Esau. There's no basis for God to have chosen one and not the other than his decision, because they've done nothing. Neither of them has done anything better than the other. Neither of them has done anything worse than the other. They don't exist. There's no potential that you can find that's more in one than another there's no other basis to go on just than God has done that in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of his works but because of his call just take that in for a second not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. Now you may see why this is difficult. There will be 
a bit of sort of explanation in next week's passage as to why God does this this way. He doesn't give so much of it, Paul, here this week. So you may just have to be a little patient. You, you may get some answers. But let me give you the best theological summary that I can give you. So why God has chosen to do this and, and do this in this way. And I spent quite a lot of time thinking about this, turning this over. I really wanted to get this sort of right for you, be as careful, judicious in my language as I could. It's a six-fold answer. You know it's going to be a good answer when it's you know, got multiple bullets to it. Why does God do this? I don't know. I don't know. It would be presumptuous of me to make a guess at why. I do not know. Secondly, you don't know either. Theologians don't know. You cannot know. We don't need to know. But God knows. That's Paul's point. In many ways, it's utterly dissatisfying. In order that God's purpose of election should continue, he did it. Because he wanted to, he did it. Utterly dissatisfying, utterly humbling. You're not going to get the full answer to it. you senseless trying to concoct one. You, you don't know. But he's decided to do that. Now think about why that's hard. Think back to the beginning and what we said. This passage is hard because culture says humans are free. Humans are autonomous. They can be whoever they want to be. They can do whatever they want to do. And so this jars because the doctrine of election tells us the exact opposite. That we're enslaved to sin. We can only be freed because God is autonomous. And he chooses to free us. So that we can choose God because he first chose us. Here's how John puts it in his first letter here. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He has first loved us that enables us to love him. It happens, he chooses simply in order that his purpose of election might continue. And so she was told, verse 12, the older will serve the younger. Now, is this fair? Well, you may have to wait till next week, I think, for a more detailed answer on that, because Paul will come back to this a bit. But for now, know this. Jacob and Esau were scoundrels. Neither deserved anything from God. The temptation is to feel. The scandal is that it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The scandal is that God loves either of them. The most logical, the most just would be to say, Jacob and Esau I hated. Scandalous grace. As it's written, there's that last verse that will have jarred as we read it, I'm sure. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That is a hard sentence, but I want to reassure you 
that it might not be as stark as it reads in the English. Because what Paul is doing here, and he's quoting from Old Testament too, by the way, but what is happening here is a comparison Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Actually, in the original language, what it's really getting at is, Jacob I've loved more. I've had a discriminating love that has given him a privilege and a love and an affection on a different level. Esau I've hated, but the word is about, I have not loved as much. I have loved Jacob in this way. Esau I have not loved in the same way as that. The both words are always about comparison. We see this in other places, this kind of idea. Jesus himself, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. He cannot mean hate in the way that we understand that word in English. Because Jesus didn't hate his family, did he? He was a loving son, a loving brother. Cared for his family. As he's on the cross, one of his last acts is to give over the support and uh, pastoral care of his mother to John. That's not the actions of a man who hates his mother. It's the actions of a man who is very deeply loving to his mother. But there is that thing of comparison. If anyone comes to me and loves their family more than me, you've not understood it yet. It's that same comparative thing, to love one more than another. And God still blesses generously those that he doesn't call to be his children. And let me give you two examples. The same sets of brothers, again, just to uh, make the case of this, that God blesses Ishmael, though he chose Isaac. You can read of this in Genesis chapter 17. Let me read for you from verse 20 and 21. Behold, I have blessed him, Ishmael, and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, He will have a nation and a kingdom and a people, just like Isaac will have 12 sons. Ishmael will have 12 princes too. The one who is not chosen. He's loved him less. But he's loved him nonetheless. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I'll establish my covenant with Isaac. God blesses Ishmael, though he chose Isaac. And then think of that second set of brothers, Jacob and Esau. God blesses Esau, though he chose Isaac. Again, you can read of this later in Genesis chapter 36. This is extracts from verses 6 to 9. Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he'd acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings couldn't support them because of their livestock. Do you see that? God had not chosen Esau. But Esau is so financially blessed, the land is simply not able to cope with both him and Jacob. He may not love him in the same way. He may not be chosen, but he has blessed him abundantly. He loves less, but is not fair to say He doesn't love. He clearly does. 
you see his wonderful generosity even to those who have not accepted him and are not chosen in the same way. And we do the same. There are those that we love, that we make family, that we make friends who are as good as family, those that we love more than others. It's not that we hate other people, but there are some people we love more. That's life, isn't it? He has chosen Jacob, and he's loved him in a more intimate, personal, deeper way than Esau, though he still blesses Esau. The hate of God to those he's not chosen is very, very different to the hate of those who continually rebel against him. So let's reframe reframe this slightly just as we come to the end here. And like I say, we'll have to come back to this and continue thinking on this because by no means can we get anywhere near all the way through all of these ideas. But let's reframe it slightly as we come towards landing. We can't, we won't, we don't naturally choose to follow God. Let me just remind you of that. We've read that just a few weeks ago, but let me just remind you. Chapter 8, verses 7 to 9. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, here's the hope in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. We can't, we won't, we don't naturally choose to follow God. So God does what we can't, what we don't, and we won't otherwise do. He chooses us. For me, these verses, I think, are incredibly encouraging and personal to me. Because, you know, some of you will will remember I've shared a bit of my sort of story before. I wanted no part of Christianity. No part. I was not interested one bit to the moment that actually God revealed himself to me. If these verses were not true, and for for some of you who are less rebellious than me, that would have been a bit of a different experience because you'll have just experienced that actually you, you reach a moment where you definitely sort of realized you wanted to choose to, to follow Christ. And because praise God for his graciousness that he, he stoked that up within, within you, because he first loved you, he's enabled you to love him, and that's great. But for me, much more hardened rebel. I told you stupidly, going off to the sort of camp at which this happened, I was praying I wouldn't become a Christian. Now, I wasn't a very good atheist, <laughs> you know. But, you know, that was something of the blind panic of it. I was that panicked. You know, there, there is an off chance that this could really go sideways. And I might end up joining these people who, you know, worst thing about the people I was going with was they were really nice. Because I, I really wanted to hate them. And the worst thing was, ugh, I really kind of admire them. And it makes me sick. Because <laughs> I, I shouldn't like them. But there's something I can't deny about their life that is really quite appealing. And they look far happier than me. 
And so I feigned sleeping on the bus on the way up. I, worst thing in the world, I don't want to have to talk to them and <laughs> take an interest in me. Oh, you know, spare me. No interest. I don't remember what the preacher was talking about. I remember being unimpressed. Like I say, I'm not a very nice person. I remember not being impressed. I remember thinking, you know, how much longer is this going to be? And then I remember in the midst of that, God speaking through that and saying, stop running. Can't outrun me. I didn't feel to any extent that I chose Jesus. I don't think I ever would have had it been on me. But I praise God for his glorious grace. He chose me (laughs) and made it very clear. It wasn't about what I wanted. I'm so thankful for that. And in the nanoseconds after that, of course, I wanted to choose him. I wanted nothing else but to follow him. (laughs) But to the second before it, no way. Thank God for his glorious grace that he chooses. So, three ways, just to try to put this in some sort of practical application for us. Because I'm aware a passage like this is quite conceptual in lots of ways, isn't it? But so three things, and I've done that preacher thing. Three things that sort of sound the same. Look up, look in, look out. It's about how we look up. It changes our view of God. It puts us in our place. It might be a truth that's in some ways jarring, but it makes it no less true. And it changes how we view him. It changes how we view God, how we look up. Secondly, it's about looking in. It changes how you view yourself. This is the only reason that I am here it's the only reason that you're here too if you've come to that place of following Jesus. But that's also good news. Because it means it's dependent on his work, not you. And when you have a bad day, it's not as though you have to worry that you're going to lose everything that he's given. It changes how you view yourself, how you look in. And then lastly, it changes how you look out. It changes how you view other people. It changes how you view evangelism. Because the hope actually becomes that the gospel really will bear fruit because God changes people's wills. God opens people's eyes. He softens people's hearts. He warms their affections and he awakens their consciences because there are people that he's chose. We don't see who they are. We just tell everyone the parable of the sower. You throw the seed everywhere. You don't know what the responses is going to be. It's not to me to know. It's not to me to make those responses. We throw the seed out. And we trust that there is a good, sovereign God who brings about the fruit. And we pray big prayers. Not just that, oh Lord, would you help them see a little bit? Would you help them soften? No, no. God, would you choose them? Would you intervene in their life? Would you be an inconvenient and uncomfortable disturbance that you grab hold of their life in the way that you've done with us. And then we have hope. God says to Paul as he's in Corinth, and he's kind of tempted to go, I think. Things have been tough. He's had opposition. And for Paul, opposition, you know, it's not just a couple of bad comments online. It's, you know, people try to kick his head in. That's a bad day. It's been tough. God says to him, stay in the city. There are many of my people here. Paul hasn't seen them yet. He doesn't know who they'll be. All he knows is, stay in the city. Throw out the seed. God is doing something here. Let's pray.